Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed that you are sovereign in our lives, that you work everything for our good and for your glory. And we do thank you, Lord, that you have not only saved us, but you are reshaping us, remaking us into the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you'll be doing that even now as we come to your word. Help us to know what it looks like to live out our new identity in Christ. And we pray that you would be giving us strength to be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when you get married, everything changes. When you get married, everything changes. You see, before you walk into the church, uh, you're single. And so, in a close physical relationship with your boyfriend and girlfriend, well, that's inappropriate. You certainly shouldn't stay overnight at their house. Uh, you shouldn't call their parents Baba and Mama and all that kind of thing. You're, you're single, and so you need to live a single life. But when you go out of the church, everything is different. You see, you've, you've said your vows, you've committed your life to the other person, you've, you've signed your life away on the certificate, and now you've got a new identity. Now you're a married person. Now Dennis is going to find out all this soon, yeah? And so then you need to wear a wedding ring on your finger. And you should call your in-laws Baba and Mama. Uh, I forgot to do that when we got married. And, uh, you know, there was a big uproar in the, in the congregation. I learned that quickly. You should live under the same roof. You should share close physical intimacy with each other. Because you're not single anymore. Now you are a married person. Your old single life is over. And now you are married. And uh, friends, today we're going to see it's exactly the same with the Christian life. Before we trust in Christ, we walk one way. We have an old life. But when we become a Christian, everything must change. We can't go on living that old life anymore, our old life of sin. We are a new person. We have a new identity. And we must live differently as God's Spirit transforms us to be who he made us to be, people in the image of of God. So in these talks we've been thinking about what it means to be made in the image of God and uh, we've seen that it means that we're made with purpose and with dignity. We're made to rule this world under God's authority. We're made to do it in relationship with God and with one another and yet we've seen that humanity fell into sin and the image of God in us was corrupted and it was distorted. Instead of displaying the glory of our Creator, we defied Him. Instead of ruling this world as God intended, we rebelled against him. And so now we live in a world that is under his curse, a world that is fallen and broken. And in the second talk, we saw that there is still hope for humanity. We saw that God sent his son, Jesus. And we saw that Jesus is the true image, the image of the invisible God. That meant that he was fully God, and so he came into this world to reveal God to us in all his glory and his grace and his truth. Uh, he, and, but he also came as fully man as well, to, to fulfill all that God intended for man. He lived the perfect life, uh, ruling this world in God's way, calming the storm, healing the sick. He always loved God, he always loved his neighbour and so on. And as our high priest, we saw he offered the perfect sacrifice for sin on our behalf. On the cross, he gave his life for us, took the punishment for our sins to make us right with God. And three days later, he rose again and sat down at God's right hand, 
ruling over this creation as God always intended. And what we're going to see today as we come to this final talk is that Jesus not only saves us, he not only redeems us from our fallenness and sin, he not only brings us forgiveness, but he actually changes us too. He he restores us, he remakes us to be who God wanted us to be. He makes us, if you like, truly human again. And here's the key point that we'll see uh, today. We've got it on the screen. Click forward for me. Uh, Yes, yeah, Jesus enables us to be remade into the image of God now and forever. Jesus enables us to be remade into the image of God now and forever. So now let's uh, begin, we'll jump to the next slide, putting on the new self. So we need to leave behind our old broken self and live out our new identity uh, in Jesus. Uh, some of us here are avid iPhone users. I signed on to the craze uh, later on, but uh, recently I had to take this phone. It's an iPhone 8. I had to take it for repairs. I had to get it a new battery for this, this phone. And I discovered that Apple offers this wonderful new for old uh, replacement scheme. Uh, so that if you're, you take them your phone and it has a problem that, that can't be fixed by their, their technician, then uh, you can opt to pay a price and they'll take your old phone away and they will give you a brand new replacement phone for a fraction of the cost if you bought a new one. Off with the old, in with the new. I just needed a new battery, I didn't need to do that. But what a wonderful scheme. And that's what happens when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He pays the price as he dies on the cross and it means out with the old and in with a brand new you. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. He says, but that's not how you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you see, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are given a whole new identity. We're no longer living that old life of wickedness and sin. We're forgiven. We're no longer sons of disobedience. We're now adopted as children of God. We're headed for heaven. And as a result, we are called to put off the old life and to put on a new one, to live out the new identity that we have in Jesus. Verse 22, we put off the old self. Verse 24, we put on the new self. It's a bit like a a clothing metaphor here. I guess on a normal Sunday when you uh, go to church, you need to think about what you are going to uh, wear to church. Uh, I mean, the men probably didn't think very much about it. I guess they just opened the cupboard and pulled out anything and uh, you know, went to church. Sometimes they don't even bother to do their hair and all that, right? Yeah. Uh, but perhaps, perhaps the women took a little bit longer to choose their outfit and uh, prepare to go to church. Uh, it's also true in the Christian life. Every day when I wake up for a new day, I need to think about what am I going to wear? What clothing am I going to wear? Not physical clothing, but am I going to put on my old self with its ugly sins? Uh, Am I going to have a bad hair day in my Christian character? 
Or am I going to put on the new self transformed into Christ's likeness? Notice how that new self is described here in verse 24. Uh, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Of course, that's echoing Genesis chapter 1 here. The wonderful news of the gospel is not just that we are redeemed or saved, not just forgiven for our sins, but God actually restores us. He remakes us to be in his likeness. We can again be in his image. We can share his character, righteous and holy, just as God always intended it to be. So that someone should be able to look at a Christian person and glimpse something of what God is like. They look at your life. They see purity. They see patience. They see love. They see truth. They see justice and so on. And they, they see something of what God is, is perfectly like. What a glorious thing this is. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And of course he means here that this is something that's already happened. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he's taken our punishment in our place and he's given us his perfect righteousness as a gift. He's already made us holy. He's already set us apart as his people. This is who we are. Remade into the likeness of God. Already in Christ. Righteous and holy. And notice how that change begins. Look at verse 23. We are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, see, before we can change our behaviour in the Christian life, we need to change our thinking. Because thinking always affects our actions. What you believe will always affect how you behave in the end. So if we are to change how we live in our lives, we first need to grasp in our minds this new identity that we have in the Lord Jesus. See, transformation or change in the Christian life, it's not simply a matter of just trying really hard or, or you know, let's put up a, a list of rules on, this, you know, on, the, on the wall here, one, two, three, four, you know, be loving, be kind, don't pick the flowers or whatever it is, right, the, the list of rules. That's not going to work in terms of transforming the Christian life. It's, it's not a matter of effort or hard work. It's a matter of understanding what is our new identity what is it that God has done? And allowing that to change us from the inside out. Think about it. A lot of religions have a lot of rules, isn't it? Whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. There's a lot of rules you have to follow. There's a lot of things that you have to do. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, people become more moral people. When they drive on the roads, it doesn't mean that they're going to be you know, patient or they're going to obey the speed limit just because there's all these rules in their religion. No. Rules doesn't change the heart, you see. It's the gospel. It's as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us. That's what transforms us. So let's think again about this glorious transformation that we have in Christ. A few chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we're told what, what we were like before we became Christians. We were dead in our sins and we were deserving the judgment of God. It says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. That, that's talking about Satan, of course. 
saying you were physically alive, but spiritually you were dead. You were like zombies, if you were like, walking dead. Because although you were physically alive, you had no relationship with God. Your relationship with God was broken. You were under his judgment. That was our previous state. And then we're told what God did. What, what is our new state now? We're told how God saved us through his son. It continues in verse 4. Next slide. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus came to die on that cross for dead sinners like you and me. He died on that cross so that we could be forgiven. Our relationship with God could be restored. And then in the next verses, we're told, how does this change happen from that old state, dead in sin, to this new state, alive in Christ? But it's not by our religious performance. It's not by our moral good works. It's by the grace of God. Verse 8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is an undeserved gift. It's when you give someone something that they don't deserve. Now, I understand over the past few days you've been uh, playing this Angels and Mortals game. Hope it was a lot of fun. You've all written each other uh, various notes and given gifts and tried to guess uh, who was who, and I hear some of you are rather clueless about the whole thing, but that's all part of the fun. Now, as you wrote those notes and you gave those gifts, you didn't do it because the, the person had somehow earned it uh, in any way, that they, they deserved it, they were such a wonderful person, and that's why you wrote the notes for them. No, you did it as an act of, of grace, of, of kindness, of your own goodwill, something that you didn't have to do. And that's what it's like in the Christian life too. We were God's enemies. We were living against God in all manner of ways. God didn't save us because we were good or because we deserved it, but because he was gracious, because he gave us a gift that we don't deserve. And this, is, of course, is what sets apart Christianity from all the other religions in the world. Every other religion is about what you must do, all the list of things that you must do so that God will be happy and he won't be angry with you. But here is Christianity. Not what you must do, but what Christ has done for you, perfectly and fully, on your behalf. So that's, that, that's, our, that, that's the, the great transformation that's happened in the Christian life. That's God's grace that has been poured upon us, dead in sin, now alive in Christ, by the grace of God. But the fact that we've been saved by grace, the fact that uh, we're not getting ourselves to heaven by all the good things that we do, it doesn't mean that now as Christians we can just go on living however we want, because anyway God's going to forgive us. Uh, anyway, we're told here that God's work in a Christian's life doesn't stop when they're saved. In fact, God is only just getting started. Uh, verse 10, uh, Paul continues, For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So just as God created us in his image at the beginning, so God now recreates us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved by our works, but here we're told we are created 
for good works, which God has prepared for us. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works that God has prepared for us. You see, in response to this wonderful grace that God has shown us, as we reflect on that wonderful salvation, it's meant to lead to a radically transformed life. A life that is like Christ. A life that is made in the image of God. And so do you see how it all happens? We reflect on the gospel. We reflect on what God has done. And allow that to transform us. To live a very different life. Out with the old. In with the new. Like a change of clothes. Like a brand new phone. Now we can look in more detail at what this means in the book of Ephesians, but Ephesians is quite long here, so I want us to instead focus on the book of Colossians and how Paul shows us this in the book of Colossians. And firstly, Paul shows us there, it looks like a brand new way of thinking. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now these verses is talking about how we have been united with Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, spiritually we become one, just like in marriage, When a husband and wife pledge themselves to each other, they're no longer two, but they are one. And when we are one with Jesus, what has happened to Jesus is what happens to us as well. We've been united with Christ. So when Christ died, that also means that our old earthly life of sin, that has died as well. And when Christ was raised, it means we also have been raised to live a new life as well. And so as we understand this, our old life is dead, we have a new life in Jesus, it leads to a whole new perspective on life. We are to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, we are to adopt a heavenly perspective. We are to have our eyes on Jesus, enthroned in heaven, thinking how to live his way. Not simply an earthly perspective, living for ourselves here in the here and now. And this new way of thinking that Paul has, shows us here then leads to a new way of, of living in the following verses. Putting to death the old life and living out a new life. So firstly, out with the old. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice the strong action that's called for here with our old lives. Not to play around with sin, uh, not to kind of half pretend that we're we're repenting, but actually we don't really have any intention of changing. We're called here to actively put to death our sins. In fact, we're called to execute them. We're called to put them on the electric chair, if you like. Put your old life of sin to death. And top of the list here, you see, is sexual sins. It starts with sexual immorality. That's any kind of wrong sex outside of marriage. It includes fornication. That's when you sleep with someone that you're not yet married to, like a boyfriend or girlfriend. 
Uh, adultery, that's when you have sex with someone else's spouse. Homosexuality, that's when you have sex with the same sex and so on. Uh, sexual immorality is, needs to be put to death. But it's not just the wrong acts of sex that are to be put to death, but also we're told the impure thoughts, the, the passions, the evil desires. You know, those lustful thoughts that we have as we look at one another, or the self-pleasure when no one else is around, or the pornography on our computers or our phones, or the covetousness as we, we look around and we see someone else having a boyfriend or girlfriend that we wish we had them instead, or we wish you had their phone or their looks or whatever it is. Paul calls all that here idolatry, because in the end you love that thing, that person, more than you love God himself. Paul warns us, put to death all those things, all those old life, execute them, hang a noose around those sins, because such an idolatrous life leads to a very bad outcome. Verse 6, Paul says here, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think it's rather unpopular in our age, isn't it? I think if you turn on Netflix, Apple TV, you see a lot of sexual immorality that is celebrated there. At least, I guess, in Malaysia, if you go to the movies, a lot of that is censored out. That's probably a good thing, isn't it? But maybe not on the streaming services. Sex scenes, lust, LGBT, it's all there in pretty much whatever show that you watch. But that's not who God made us to be. All that is ugly, it's impure. And we're warned here that those things have disastrous consequences in eternity. Those who won't turn from such idolatry will face God's judgment in the end. And so as Christians, we need to actively fight against those things. As I said on the first night, the statistics say that most of us here are struggling with pornography, and that includes many of the women here too. Uh, those of us who are dating, of course, will face the temptation to cross those physical boundaries that we know that we shouldn't cross, but we want to do it anyway, acting impurely with our boyfriend or girlfriend. Paul tells us here, those things are our old life, our earthly life. And we are to fight it. We are to take drastic action against it. We need to do what we need to do. Confess it to a friend. Uh, install some accountability software. I've been using this software called Covenant Eyes for the last 15 years. Basically, it records whatever you look at on the internet and sends it to your friend uh, that you nominated. That's a good motivation not to look at things. Yeah? The first month is free. You can install it on the bus on the way home. If we've been saved by Christ, that old, earthly, damaged, distorted life is over. It's finished. We are called to a new life. Now, it's not just the sexual sins here. It's also, we're told, how we speak to each other. Look at verse 7. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Wrath is kind of a severe form of anger. Malice is when you hate someone, you want their harm. Slander is when you say untrue things to hurt someone. Obscene talk is, you know, like dirty talk, dirty jokes, all of that. Hurtful, hateful, dirty speech, that's the old life. That has no place where to put it off. 
where to execute it. That kind of speech that intentionally hurts other people, that des destroys relationships, that's dirty or objectionable, that's the old life. The rage when we're driving, I think I've heard one of the group members talk about how the rage just comes up when they're driving the car. Or, or the gossip when someone's hurt us and we just need to badmouth them to everyone around us. Or, or just the swearing and the, the dirty jokes. Sometimes it just comes out. We have a young adults group and even in a Bible study, one of our young adults, it just came out when the, they weren't uh, really watching what they were saying. All that belongs to the old life, the earthly life. It's to be put to death. Look what James writes in James chapter 3. He says, Every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. If we recognise God's image in other people, then we should treat them with dignity and respect, seeking their good and not their harm, especially in how we speak to them. But it's so easy, isn't it? Uh, we, as we're here in the camp, we all pretend to be uh, you know, holy and good people, and you know, then when we go home and no one's around, then we flip back to what we're, what we're really like, isn't it? Going to attack people with our tongues. That's the old life. It has no place. Now, we must set our minds on things above, not on things on earth. But it's not just sexual immorality. It's not just hurtful words. He talks about lies in verse 9. He says, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. I think we all know what it's like to be lied to. That's something that really, really hurts, isn't it? Especially if it's someone close to us who lies to us, someone that we trusted. And yet, actually, we do it all the time, don't we? I mean, we just call it a small, little white lie. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, the ends justifies the mean. We just want to save face for the person, so let's just not tell the truth. But if we're united in Christ, if we're spiritually seated in heaven, there's no place for lies in our Christian life. We need to set our minds on things above and learn to tell the truth. So these are all the things that belong to our old life, our old self, which we need to put off, which has been replaced as we came to put our trust in Jesus. It is to be out with the old and in with the new. We're told in verse 9, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. And so since God has given us this new self, we are to be who we are. We are to embrace this new identity that we've been given. We are to live out a new life. You can't go on living as a single person when you're married. That's just a really great way to irritate your spouse, trust me. And you can't go on living a sinful life when you've become a Christian. That's just a really good way to irritate the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, in this new humanity, this new self, remade in the image of God, what does it look like? Well, we're, we're no longer divided 
by race or social class. He says in verse 11, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. In this new humanity, the church, remade in the image of God, class doesn't matter anymore. Race doesn't matter anymore. I find it so sad, very sad, when you see such class divisions or race divisions brought into the church. When you see a Christian relate to, say, a a maid or a foreign worker in a church, and somehow there's this hierarchy, they're a lesser person or something like that. That's awful, isn't it? No, it doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what their job is. If they are a Christian and you are a Christian, we are the same. We are equal. Whatever we are outside the church, when you walk in the doors, we are fundamentally equal. And as that new humanity across all races and genders and ages, look how we are now to live. Look at verse 12. He says, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice again how all this flows out of our new identity in Jesus. We are to live out who we are. Who are we? We're God's chosen people. We're, we're holy and loved by God. Through Christ, God has set us apart as his own. That's what it means to be holy. He's loved us when he died for us. That's who we are. And since that's who we are, holy and loved, now we have a new life that we are to live out. We are to be like God, like Father, like Son. We are to clothe ourselves with all his virtues. Virtues consistent with the Lord Jesus. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Note how all those qualities there are the kind of qualities that build relationships rather than destroying them. Compassion, that's when you relate to someone with empathy. Moving towards their suffering instead of saying they're a little bit difficult, I'll run in the other direction with my friends. It might mean caring for that awkward member in your Bible study group that uh, you you would rather was in the other group. Or supporting someone who's lost a loved one, even though it's it's difficult to be with them as they're going through all the pain. Or kindness. You, You think how to act with a full heart towards other people. How to do real good to them with your words and actions. Or humility, you're not seeking to impress other people. You're happy to fade into the background to elevate and serve the interests of other people. Or meekness, that means that gentleness, not using your strength for yourself, not being blatant or harsh, but being gentle and meek towards others. And patience, allowing time for other people to grow and change. I mean, most of you are like 19 years old. It doesn't mean that you have suddenly arrived and there's no more sin in your life anymore. No, there's going to be patience. Patience as you serve together in the CF, for example. Is that what your life is like? Passionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. That's the new life. That's your new identity in Jesus. And Paul continues in verse 13. He says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. No longer are we cutting off people who hurt us, unfriending them, or getting revenge. That's the old life. 
That's how the non-believer acts. No, we are willing to overlook faults. We don't get angry about every minor thing. We generously extend forgiveness. And notice it's not optional. He says here, we must forgive. As God forgave you, you must forgive. That's in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, I find that's really, really hard. If you ask me what's the hardest part of the Christian life, I would say that this is it, forgiving other people. I find that really, really difficult. But that's what God is like, you see. God forgave us when we were his enemies, when we were sinners. And if we really know him, then we will forgive others too. And verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And love, of course, is God's defining characteristic. God is love. He's poured his love upon us. And love is to be our defining mark as we relate to each other, putting others' needs above ourselves, serving sacrificially. It's been wonderful in this camp to see people loving one another in various ways, often quietly behind the scenes, in ways that no one else sees, but sometimes I like to just sit back and just see what people uh, are doing. You know, when people take the effort to talk to someone who's being a bit left out, or uh, you know, when someone has no notes in their Angels and Mortals game, they, they notice it and they, they, they write some notes for them. Or uh, there's people that setting up the tables for, for the meals or clearing up or preparing the music for the next session when no one else is, a, is around, arranging the logistics so that we can actually get on the bus to go home. There's been all kinds of wonderful ways where people have been loving one another behind the scenes and probably wasn't noticed. But that's, that's what it means to be remade in the image of God, loving one another like this. And the final quality we have here is thankfulness. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice how thankfulness is to be the refrain, the melody of the Christian life. Not grumbling, complaining about the food maybe, or complaining about the alarm that goes off at 3 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. and 4 a.m. 4.30 a.m. Thankfulness. Thankfulness, a heart of praise to God as you reflect on what he's done. And not just uh, praise and singing, but in your whole life. He says everything that you do as a thankful response to the God who has saved you. Now, of course, none of this is going to be instantaneous. It's not that you just come to the camp and then we all go home and suddenly we are you know, Christ-like in every way. It would be wonderful if it was like that, but it just doesn't work, does it? We're not going to wake up in the morning and suddenly be compassionate, humble, kind, loving, forgiving and thankful in all of the time. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort as we reflect again and again on what God has done for us and allow his gospel to transform us, to live out that new identity, out with the old and in with the new. 
So that's the first point, and uh, I did warn you it would be quite long. The last two now more briefly. How do we put on the new self? Well, yes, reflecting on what God has done for us in Christ. But the New Testament also tells us that a key ingredient that God uses to remake us into the image of God is actually suffering. So that's the second point. Conformed to God's image through suffering. Conformed to God's image through suffering. Look with me at those uh, famous words from Romans 8. And we've, we've sang them quite a number of times, repeating this morning in that theme song of the camp. It's a well-chosen song. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's such a wonderful promise, isn't it? That God works everything, the good and the bad things, for our benefit. Nothing that happens in life is an accident. Nothing in life is is outside of God's control. Nothing can derail God's good purposes for your life. God will use, can use, anything and everything for your benefit and for your good. Just think of Joseph in the Old Testament, sold as a slave by his brothers, falsely accused and thrown into prison, abandoned and forgotten by those he was with when they were released. But God uses all that to save his family, to save the Egyptians from that great famine so that God's promises can continue. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, falsely accused, betrayed by his best friend Judas, brutally tortured on the cross, mocked even by those that he was crucified next to them. And yet God can use even that brutal act for the greatest good, to bring salvation to the world. What a great comfort this verse, isn't it? Bad A-levels results can be used by God for good. Don't do it on purpose, but there's a comfort. If it doesn't get seven A-stars, it's not the end of the world. An untimely episode of COVID, a relationship breakup, a bout of anxiety or depression. God can even use those things. God can can use anything and everything. He will use anything and everything for your good. Now, we need to be careful here, though, because... We're often in danger of taking this wonderful verse out of its context to imply that if you're a Christian, then everything's always going to go wonderfully uh, in your life. There won't be any tragedies or sufferings. It's always going to be a happy ending. Everything's always going to work out in this life. But she says being a Christian doesn't stop you from being involved in a landslide. It doesn't stop you from getting COVID or, and losing a loved one. It doesn't stop you from having bad things happening in your life. No. The promise of God is that he can and will use those bad things for his good. But it doesn't mean that they're not going to happen, that everything's always going to be wonderful. See, we must ask, what is the good that God is working in everything to achieve? Is it happiness? Is it comfort? Is it, is it joy? What's the good that God is working these things for? And we always need to go to the next verse to get the explanation. Look at verse 29. Starts with the word for. It's explaining what is this good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. The Bible tells us here God predestines us, that is, He chooses or elects who will put their faith in Jesus before the, the world is made, who will be saved. That's a very humbling thought, isn't it? That we would only choose God because He would choose us first. But do you see why God chooses, chooses us? What's His purpose? It's to conform us, you see, to the image of his son, verse 29. That's the good that he's working in everything to achieve. He's working in everything to make you like Jesus, to restore you into the image of God as he makes you like his son, the perfect image of God. But have you ever considered, if God is making us like Christ, well, what happened to Christ? What, what was Jesus' life like? Suffering first, glory later. So part of being conformed to the image of Christ, therefore, means suffering now, glory later. Look how Paul puts it just a few verses earlier in Romans 8. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, is the condition, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. See what I'm saying? If we are real, true children of God, brothers of Christ, then the shape of the Christian life will be suffering now glory later. Because that's what God is doing. He's conforming us to be like Christ. And Christ's life was suffering now. Glory later. It's not victory now and prosperity now and happiness now and blessing now. That's what the prosperity gospel falsely promises in so many churches. No. Suffering now. Glory, blessing later. Jesus is the true image of God, the perfect man. How did he live? He persevered through suffering and enjoyed glory later. And if we are being conformed to his image, our lives will take the same pattern. In fact, if you look at Philippians 3, Paul actively embraces such a life of suffering. He makes it his goal in some sense. Look at verse 10. He says his goal is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What a big challenge that is, isn't it? He wants to know Jesus by experiencing suffering like Jesus did. As we put to death our old lives and live out our new lives, uh, shaped into the image of Christ, We're no longer going to be seeking comfort and blessing and happiness and victory like all our friends around us. No. We're willing to sacrifice those things, to embrace a life of suffering and difficulty for Christ because our minds are set on the things above, not on the things of earth. We are conformed to God's image through suffering. And and as we do suffer in this world, We are assured, of course, by the glorious hope. The suffering is not going to last forever. There's glory in the end. And that's the final point uh, this morning. Our glorious hope, the transformation complete. Our glorious hope, the transformation complete. And uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30, which we've read, is, is sometimes called the golden chain. 
uh, because it, it shows how in God's sovereignty he guarantees salvation from beginning to end. What he starts, he will definitely finish. Look again at it. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, those who God chose to be his people, he predestined before the world was made. They will certainly be called. They will certainly hear the gospel message preached to them. And as they hear that gospel call, we're told that they will be justified. They will turn to Jesus and they will be, they will, they will be made right with God. And not just that, they won't just be justified, but they will be glorified. They will be glorified in heaven in the end. In fact, so certain is that, that prospect of glory at the end that Paul puts it in the past tense here as if it's already happened. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's like it's already happened. It's so certain that it is going to happen in the future. Because God in his sovereignty is going to ensure that this transformation process is completed in the end. We will reach the heavenly goal. And on that day, God's transforming work will be perfectly complete. And 1 Corinthians 15 is our last passage for today. It's a glorious passage that talks about what it will be like on that day when we're resurrected again with glorious new resurrection bodies, just like Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, when we are born in this life, we're, we're kind of uh, weak and aging and you know, eventually the hair's going to fall out. You guys are looking pretty good for now, but once you start catching up with my age, sorry, it doesn't, kind of goes downhill from where you guys are right now. But when Jesus was raised, he wasn't raised with, with one, of, one of these kind of bodies, weak and perishing like now. He was raised with a glorious, immortal, resurrection body, a spiritual body. And we're told that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. We too will have these glorious resurrection bodies. So look what Paul writes in that chapter. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What wonderful verses. This broken, distorted state that we're in now. Sinful, twisted, broken. That's not the last word in God's plan. Death, punishment, that's not the last word in God's plan. For those who trust in Jesus, who are being remade into God's likeness, what a glorious hope that we have. Death defeated, life eternal, 
resurrection bodies, immortality. We will truly be transformed into the image of God. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of this camp, let me encourage you to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Don't live your life like everyone else out there who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. God has planned so much more for you. Let's allow God's transforming work to happen in our lives, making us who we were made to be, men and women, made in the image of God, a living testimony to the greatness and the glory of God. And it all begins with the gospel. It all begins with recognising our new identity in Jesus, what he has done for us, out with that old life he's redeemed us from, in with the new life, and seeking day by day to live out that new identity, suffering now in anticipation of glory and perfection in the future. When you get married, everything changes. Single life is over. Married life begins. When you become a Christian, everything must change. The old life of sin is gone. We're a new person in Jesus. And God is remaking us into the image and likeness of God. That's our main point today. Jesus enables us to be remade into the image of God. Now and forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to give you the praise and the thanks for your wonderful grace that you have poured upon us. Lord, you could have abandoned us. You could have punished us eternally for all of our rebellion and sin. But you sent your Son to save us. And not only to save us, but to, to restore us and renew us, to make us who you want us to be. Thank you, Lord. We do pray that you would be at work in the lives of each one of us. We pray for those who have not yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do that recreating work in their hearts. Help them to turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For us who know the Lord Jesus already, help us to live out our new identity. Help us not to be distracted by the world around us and live earthly lives as those who do not know Jesus. Help us, Lord, to put on our new identity, to live out our new lives as you make us more and more like Jesus. Lord, help us to live lives that glorify you as we wait for that glorious day when we will be truly in your image and spend eternity in your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.